0: Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Dr. Salazar, and thank you, Connecticut Children's, for having me here today. Uh, so, as Mark had mentioned, I will talk a little bit about the shoulder instability in the adolescent athlete. And so, there is this talk about Siberia and Moscow. So, I got a call about uh, three weeks ago that the USA wrestling team, which is the Olympic hopeful team, they qualified for the World Cup of freestyle wrestling. So, I said, "Great, you know, I'll go. Where is it? Russia. Perfect. You know, I'll clear my schedule." And then, about an hour later, I text the. Uh, USA Wrestling Athletic Trainer, I say, where exactly in Russia? And I get a text back, Yakutsk. So I say, Google Yakutsk, and the first thing that comes up is Siberia, the Wikipedia page of, you know, the coldest city in the world. So uh, it was was an interesting experience. Uh, To the left here is actually what the roads look like in Siberia. They clear them pretty well, um, but you can see these are blocks of ice. And they're almost like layers in a tree. You can see each ice melt and remelt. So those, that's like how much ice there is throughout the year. But they actually get a summer. So you wouldn't think that Siberia, being the coldest city in the world, actually has a summer. But they have summers and they have lakes. And the town we were in had a university and malls and restaurants. So it wasn't quite the desolate tundra that I had anticipated. And then the only way to get there is through Moscow. So this is a picture of Red Square. That's actually what the Kremlin looks like. Kremlin Kremlin's actually a giant fortress, and inside are a bunch of museums as well as the Kremlin where, you know, of course, Putin rules uh, you know, Russia from. And then over there is St. Basil's Cathedral, which is just around the corner from the, uh, the Kremlin, and then it's a very famous cathedral in Red Square. So you know, when it comes to adolescent shoulder injury, oh, actually, I was going to say, I was going to call this my icebreaker slide, but I didn't know if that would get go across as well, so I figured I'd just mention it in passing. So adolescent shoulder injuries, you know, there are three things that come to mind when you think about shoulder injuries. Instability, a slap tear, which is a tear of the superior labrum, uh, or rotator cuff tears. And in our population, rotator cuff tears are very rare. You know, usually it's a 45-year-older uh, injury. So, you know, Connecticut Children's Adolescent Sports Medicine Rotator Cuff Tears really aren't on the radar. And slap tears are something that, that we should consider, but the you know, vast, vast majority of these can be treated non-operatively in the adult and the adolescent patient with physical therapy, even at the level of professional baseball. They've done tons of studies looking at slap tears, and it's actually – better to do physical therapy, possibly even worse to do surgery on slap tears. So really you can throw out slap tears and rotator cuff tears. And when you're looking at an adolescent shoulder injury, instability should be pretty high on your radar. So there are several types of shoulder instability. I've kind of lumped them all together for the purpose of this talk. Uh, The first one is the one that you think about when someone has a dislocation. So that's a traumatic or unidirectional instability. So they only have uh, instability in one direction. In this case, it's anterior usually. Um, There's also repetitive subluxation. So subluxation is where it doesn't actually dislocate. It kind of comes up to the edge and pinches the labrum and can cause some degeneration over time. That's usually more posterior. Then you have something that we actually see a lot here at Connecticut Children's—that's multidirectional instability, which we'll talk a bit about. And then I have a section here specifically on the overhead athlete because they're a very specific subpopulation of adolescent athletes. So for the traumatic unidirectional instability, you know, physical exam is is key in this. Uh, unfortunately, when you first see them, the range of motion may be limited if it's acute, uh, but the, the test that I feel is the most important is the apprehension and the relocation test, and this is something that you can do with a patient lying supine. You want to bring them over to the side of the table so you can bring their arm down. Now this picture here shows someone applying an anterior directed force. You really don't need to do that. You really just kind of bring them down and start to actually rotate. And if they've had a recent dislocation or they've torn the anterior labrum, externally rotating the arm is going to make the humerus head, the head want to come out anteriorly, and so they'll become very apprehensive when that happens. So that's a sign they may have some instability anteriorly. And then something that helps me decide if surgery is going to help them is I apply a posterior directed force. That's the relocation test. And so if I'm applying a posterior directed force and that makes most or all of their apprehension goes away, that tells me most of their instability is anterior, and we can hopefully do something about that. So if you have someone who has had a shoulder dislocation, they have anterior apprehension, you know, what do you do? So that's always the big question. Do we do surgery? Do we do physical therapy? Do we need to refer this? So one of the first things I want to know is what sport does the athlete play? Because whether they're playing a contact sport or a non-contact sport, that's very important in whether this will recur again. And has this happened before? Is this a first-time dislocation? or is this a second, third, fourth, or fifth? Because whether it's a first-time traumatic dislocation versus a multi-traumatic dislocation, I think, matters in your decision-making. And then have they tried PT in the past? So have they tried an adequate route of conservative treatment, and have they failed this? So tons of studies beginning in the West Point area, actually, uh, in 1986, and has been repeated multiple times, shows that risk factors for shoulder instability can be predictive of who's gonna have the highest recurrence rate. So someone who's less than 25 years old, someone who plays a contact sport, and the contact sport like football is pretty easy to to do, excuse me. I put wrestling in that category because they have a lot of shoulder dislocations. You know, volleyball, not so much. Basketball is a bit of a contact sport, but I personally don't put it in that same category as football, rugby, or wrestling. So you you kind of make your own decision on what is a quote-unquote contact sport. When they have done most of these studies, it was with rugby players and football players. So that's a fairly obvious contact sport. But you definitely want to consider what do you think is a contact sport. And then, of course, male age seems to be a factor. So if you have two of these three factors, your risk of recurrence is pretty high. So the question then becomes, well, do we want to get an MRI? If it's a first-time dislocation, is the MRI going to help you? Now, it certainly can't hurt. It might make the patient feel better, you know, knowing that there is a labral tear, but you want to get the MRI with the decision in mind, not getting the MRI just for the sake of getting MRI. You want to get the MRI with a plan, well, what is that MRI going to tell you? So for me, if I'm thinking I'm going to do a surgery, that's usually when I'm getting an MRI. If we're just going to end up in physical therapy, You know, you really don't need the MRI. Often the parents will want the MRI because it will make them feel better, and you can have that discussion with them whether, you know, you actually need to get the MRI. But if you're going to end up in physical therapy anyways, you know, it's a lot of money and time to get an MRI performed. If you think that, you know, it can make the patient feel better, have more confidence in your interaction with them, you know, feel free to go ahead and get that. But you should definitely have the discussion, what are the risk factors? Because that, more than the MRI, is going to determine what your next steps are. So there's a lot of studies that have repeated these numbers, and if you have those risk factors that I just mentioned, less than 25 years old, contact sport, male uh, gender, 85% will have a repeat dislocation if you don't do surgery. So that's a pretty high number. So if you're going to send someone to physical therapy, they they have a chance of getting better, 15%. Uh, so it's not life or death. You don't have to have a surgery. But if it's a high likelihood it's going to recur again, then you want to have that conversation with them. And with surgery, you actually flip those numbers. So it's an 85% success rate with surgery. So still 15% will re-dislocate afterwards. But if they have those risk factors, then that would be a person you would consider for a first-time traumatic dislocation surgery. If they don't fall under that category, then you certainly can send them to physical therapy. And with surgery, there's still PT involved, too. For me, a three- to four-month rehab. Usually in a sling for about six weeks. We're doing some range of motion, but we're not doing too much because we don't want to stretch out what we just repaired. And then after those six weeks, we get rid of the sling, and then we can start focusing more on range of motion. Now, if you're going to go the non-operative route, physical therapy should be very specific. So it works on the rotator cuff. Now, the rotator cuff, each individual muscle helps to rotate the arm and the socket. But because you have one in the front, one in the top, two in the back, when they squeeze together, it actually helps center the humeral head in the socket. So that actually helps to stabilize it. Uh, The scapula is also something people don't really focus on. We focus always on the rotator cuff, but half of the shoulder joint is the scapula, the glenoid fossa. So if you're not focusing on the scapula, and the scapula is moving around, and even if the ball is trying to center with the rotator cuff, if that socket isn't staying with the ball, and in essence, that ball is being unstable. So you have to work on scapula stabilization, which are these rowing exercises. So the physical therapists generally will use something called Ys. So they bring the arm up in Ys, that's sort of the upper trapezius. Ts, that's the middle trapezius. And then lower trapezius, you bring things down. And those both combine to something called the glenohumeral, that's exactly what I was talking about on the sock, how they move together. So in in case of a non-operative, Patient, You know, it usually takes a couple weeks. And I will clear them to return to play when they have full range of motion or strength. And that varies from person to person. Sometimes it's just, you know, two or three weeks. Sometimes it may be six weeks. And a lot of this also depends on whether the athlete is in season or out of season. So if it's a football player, and they're in season and they're able to get back, you have that discussion with them, well, can this recur? Yes, there's a high likelihood of recurring, but they want to finish their season because if you do surgery, they're out for the season. So you have that discussion with them. If they say, I would like to go ahead and finish my season and do surgery in the off season, well, now you have a difference between treating an athlete in season versus out of season. But in general, they can go back to play when they have full range of motion and strength. Now, when we do surgery, this is the shoulder joint. And so everyone has a concept in their head of the ball and socket joint. It's very easy to, to envision. What we really don't understand, unless we spend a lot of time staring at arthroscopic pictures, and even then a lot of people aren't appreciating what they see arthroscopically, are the ligaments of the shoulder. There are ligaments in there. They're not as obvious as the knees, not as obvious as an ACL, an MCL, and LCL. Those are fairly obvious structures in the shoulder they really they're described as and they really are just thickening of the capsule but you can see them they're sort of pleats and so if we look over here the most important for anterior stability is this anterior inferior glenohumeral ligament so you have a AIGHL the anterior band you have a PIGHL the posterior you have a middle and the superior so mostly when someone dislocates traumatically, it's usually an anterior inferior direction. So they're going to tear the labrum. And you can see here, this is how we repair the labrum. But really, the labrum, although it's a bumper, we make a nice bumper when we do surgery, there are studies that show that bumper actually disappears over time. What really may be helping keep people stable is the tightening or the imbrication of the ligament. And so the ligament attaches to the labrum. So by bringing that labrum back up, you're actually bringing the ligaments back up. So we like to talk about the labrum, and labrum is very important. But really, what's the most important is restoration of the ligaments, because the ligaments really to help keep the, the ball in the socket. And as I mentioned, this is sort of what we do. We do things called anchors, and so there are anchors that are made of plastic. There are anchors that are just made of suture. Uh, they are knotted, and they're also knotless technologies. Uh, but basically, you have to wrap around the labrum. When you wrap around the labrum, you grab the ligament or the capsule, and you help tighten everything up, and this is done arthroscopically. So the other, you know, another uh, important thing to keep in mind is a patient who has posterior pain. So this is not as obvious as someone who had a traumatic dislocation, went out the front, the trainer had to pop it back in. This is something that is more of a chronic problem from subluxation or the ball just repeatedly hitting the back of the labrum. And usually it's posterior. And the way it happens is if somebody's doing a lot of bench pressing, they're loading backwards onto the labrum. Or a football lineman who's doing a lot of straight arm blocking. So what's just happening is that arm is getting repeated, repeatedly pushed backwards and that ball is repeatedly fraying that labrum. And so they're not going to have apprehension because it was never a true dislocation. Right, the labrum's still there, it just may be torn or frayed, uh, but what key is their pain. So they say, every time I bench press, it hurts, or every time I'm blocking, it hurts. So for this one, history is very important. Now, you, know, you can also get uh, some uh, recreation of their pain by posteriorly directing the humeral head while you're bringing the arm up. Um, that's something that you can check for posterior instability, uh, but also can recreate pain. So you think, okay, maybe something's going on back there. And that's where an MRI will help, because an MRI can differentiate whether there's a tear. And when we order MRIs, I personally like to order it with arthrogram because you can put the dye inside the shoulder joint and it will track into the tear and it helps to visualize it. Now if there's an acute dislocation, some people may argue that you don't need the dye because there's blood in the joint and the blood sort of acts like a dye. But for me, generally, I like to do it with the dye because it helps me visualize better what's going on inside the shoulder joint. with the posterior subluxation, the posterior labral tears, this one is not one of these things where if you don't have surgery, you're going to have a recurrence of dislocation. So those numbers that we talked about, the 85-15, they don't matter here. That's a different problem. Here we're talking about just some fraying or tearing, almost like a meniscus tear of the shoulder. This is sort of what it feels like. There's pinching and pulling causing inflammation of the capsule. So here the treatment starts with the PT because, again, if you can balance that cuff, that rotator cuff, you can help keep the ball in the socket. It's not going to keep butting up against the head. So if you can keep the shoulder ball in the socket, that actually helps. It also helps a lot of other things like slap tears and even some rotator cuff tears is by keeping the ball centered in the socket, it's not bouncing around and hitting these structures that cause pain. That's a really big point to make when you're talking about physical therapy. Now, if physical therapy fails and they can't participate in sports, that's when I would consider surgery because this is one of the things that you can make better simply by avoiding the things that hurt. If it is truly just bench press that hurts, they can do other activities in the gym. They can play with the incline of the bench. They can focus on free weights versus dumbbells. So there's activity modifications you can make. But if they're a football lineman and they just can't play as a football lineman and that's really what they want to do, that's when you have the decision to talk about surgery. And in this case, you can do a debridement or a repair. We try to repair it. But that posterior labrum, posterior capsule, isn't as robust as the anterior one. So really, even if you debride it, it seems to make them feel just as better. And you're not causing any posterior instability. Okay. Now, this is something that interests me a lot. It's multidirectional instability, and we see a lot of that in our adolescent population. So multidirectional instability, or MDI for short, is instability in two directions. Usually one is inferior. So you can see this on a sulcus test, which I'll show you, as well as a load and shift test. And this is usually a chronic issue. Usually by the time they're presenting to you, it's been years you know, at least a year, if not multiple years, or as long as they can remember, their shoulder's been dislocating, their friends may know about it, certainly their parents know about it, and usually dislocates on their own. The populations I often see this in is swimmers, volleyball players, and wrestlers, which is you think about, again, wrestlers being a contact sport, traumatic injury, but a lot of them actually have ligamentous laxity. That's why they're able to get in some of the positions they are. So these are issues that, you know, this ligamentous laxity allows these athletes to do what they need to do, so they're sort of gifted, but it's also a double-edged sword because this ligamentous laxity is also what can cause these chronic shoulder problems. So this is an example of the sulcus sign, and this is inferior instability, so not something that we, we talk about a lot. We use it for a diagnosis, but we don't often think about it for treatment. But this is the sulcus sign, the inferior subluxation. This is related to the superior glenohumeral ligament, or the ligament that's on the top. It's helping to keep the ball in the socket, but if that's loose, like the rest of the ligaments are loose, you're going to have inferior subluxation. And this is my favorite test to perform, and I always perform this in the OR with the patient asleep, too, because this gives me a real sense of where is the shoulder unstable, where do I need to stabilize it. So with the patient lying prone, or supine, rather, in the exam room or lateral when I'm doing my surgeries with them asleep, you basically you want to grab the forearm or the elbow. And you kind of make a little loose motion with the forearm and elbow. That kind of helps you to lever things. You want to push into the glenoid, and you want to move then the head up and down. And you can feel it go over the edge of the glenoid. You can feel it go over the ed- edge of the glenoid anteriorly. You can feel it go over the edge of the glenoid posteriorly. And so this gives you an idea of where are they most unstable. So for me as a surgeon, that's important for me to know what's their primary direction of instability because that's where I'm going to start when I try and fix the shoulder. Now the Baton score is something we use to determine ligamentous laxity in general. This is important for shoulders. This is important for knees, is important for lots of issues because it helps identify this person as a generalized ligamentously lax individual. So, Basically, the different thing, tests that you use is the thumb to the forearm. You see, I can't do it, but somebody's ligament is relaxed can bring their thumb to the forearm. Extension of the little finger. Hyperextension of the elbows. Hyperextension of the knees backwards. And can they lean all the way down and touch the floor with their, their palms. And you get one point for each side, so the total is nine. Two for each of the thumbs, two for the pinkies, two for the elbows, two for the knees, one for the, the legs. A positive score is four. So as you get higher, you say, okay, I had a more ligamentously lax, but a positive score is four. So really, if you just do the thumb to the forearm and hyperextension of the elbows, that already is now a ligamentously lax individual. So you could technically stop there and say it's positive, but if you wanted to get a true score, you'd have to do all of those. But I always do hyperextension of the elbows and thumb to the forearm to see, am I dealing with a ligamentously lax individual? And there is some research showing that you can actually help diagnose MDI on MRI. So if you look to the... Uh, a screen here, so that's your left, that's an abducted extra rotation view of MRI, and that's dye inside the joint. So someone who has a lot of anterior laxity, the head actually starts to lever out, and so you're gonna see more dye where that star is. That's something called the crescent sign. So you actually can see more dye. So if you have a bunch of MRIs, start looking and see how much dye you see on the axials. And if you see increased dye, that's a clue that that head is levering, and there's some ligamentous laxity there. There's also, if you look at the sagittals here, and the sagittals aren't the easiest things to look at, but this is the ball. If you were to scroll in deeper, you'd see the socket. So up here is your chromium bone. So the supraspinatus is sitting right here. That's the top. The subscap is sitting here. That's the front. So what we call the rotator interval is between the supraspinatus and the subscapularis. So often these patients will have a lax rotator interval. You can diagnose this on MRI because when they inject the dye, the dye is going to track out of this interval and start to come over the top of the subscap. So that's a lax rotator interval. And if you have a lax rotator interval, some surgeons now are doing a rotator interval closure because we talked about a sulcus sign earlier. You're diagnosing this with an inferiorly directed force, but when we do our surgeries, we're only dealing with anterior or posterior. We're not truly addressing that inferior laxity. And so that's where the rotator interval closure comes in, is basically you're placating this superior, glenohumeral ligament to the middle glenohumeral ligament. So that's something else we can do to help stabilize the shoulder. Again, this is also done arthroscopically. So treatment for MDI should always start with physical therapy. So traditionally in adults, three months is the traditional teaching, so definitely do three or even six months. Uh, With our adolescent population, they're a bit more of a high-demand population. They really want to get back to their sports. So I would definitely start with six weeks and see if any improvement. If we're not starting to see six weeks, that's sort of a magic number when you're talking to physical therapists. How long is it going to take for you to start to see some improvement? Six weeks seems to be a good number. So if you see some improvement, then I always tell people, you know, improvement is improvement even if it's slow. So if you're starting to get some improvement, that's great. We can stick with physical therapy. If they're not seeing any improvement in six weeks, that's when you might want to have the discussion about having arthroscopic Surgery. Now, of course, if they're not getting better, you want to check are they actually doing their PT. So what exercises are you doing and where are you going? And those are the two questions I, I like to ask to really get a sense of are they doing it. Because we are dealing with a lot of adolescents and, you know, sometimes they're not the, you know, PT is not the highest on their priority list. So you really want to question are you doing your home exercises and where are you going? And if they're not doing the exercise that you think they should be doing and they are going somewhere else, often we'll just have them come back here to Connecticut Children's or Elite Sports Medicine because we know we have good the therapists. But obviously having a convenient place is difficult to, to make sure the patient's going. But if you think, you know, they're not getting the adequate treatment, then maybe you should refer them to, you know, Elite Sports Medicine or Connecticut Children's because we know we have good therapists that are going to do the right job for the patient. Now, surgically what we do is similar to the labral tear. It's to do this caps, capsular placation. We call it a pan-capsular plication because we're doing both the front and the back. And it's restoration of what I like to call, and other people call the hammock. And that hammock is basically that, anterior inferior glenohumeral ligament and that posterior inferior glenohumeral ligament. So it sort of forms a hammock here. And so you know you get an idea, here's posterior, here's anterior. So you want to take that hammock and you want to bring it up and tighten it. So you kind of restore the hammock as opposed to that unidirectional instability, you're just restoring the anterior if they are unstable anterior. This is restoration of the hammock because it's multidirectional. And this also will help that inferior instability that we discussed about. So I just wanted to pause here and talk a little bit more about Siberia, give us a break about all this AIGHL, PIGHL. So when you go to Siberia, it's you know, the world's coldest city is Yakutsk. And in Siberia, they find woolly mammoths like all the time, which is crazy. 60 tons of mammoth tusks are found every year. They also have 90% of Russia's diamonds, but nobody seems to care about that. They all care about the woolly mammoths. And so they actually find preserved mammoths. So the, only, the world's only mammoth museum is in Siberia. So here's, you know, a skeleton woolly mammoth. They have fur, like actual woolly mammoth fur. They have woolly mammoth skin, woolly mammoth foot. They have woolly mammoth spine with, you know, bone marrow elements. Uh, and these are the teeth. Woolly mammoth have baby teeth and adolescent teeth, and so these are the teeth as they grow. Uh, in 2013, they found one that even had blood, uh, which is crazy. Then they tested it, and there were red blood cells and, and you know, mammoth DNA. So they're the the Chinese scientist that wants to clone everything in the world, he cloned the dogs and, you know, just, you know questionable in his ethics, but he got a contract where he has rights to use that mammoth blood to eventually try and clone a mammoth. So he's pretty confident, or at least they are, that they can make a furry elephant right now. Uh, but eventually they may actually try and clone a real woolly mammoth, which is kind of crazy. So... After a little interlude there, we'll talk about something that I really am interested in, and that's the overhead athlete. And when we talk about overhead athletes, I really like to talk about pitchers. You have javelin throwers, you have volleyball players, you have tennis players. But pitchers are a really unique breed. And they actually adapt their bodies to do what they do. So to be a good pitcher at a high level, this is a professional pitcher for the Indians organization, you can see how far back they can bring their arm, which is pretty crazy. Uh, But basically, the farther back you bring your arm, it's like a catapult, right? The farther you bring it back, the more momentum you're imparting to that ball, the harder or faster you can throw it. So the best pitchers are these ones that can generate arm speed, but they generate it with a large total arc of motion. So this arc of motion is actually very important when you're considering a pitcher and whether they'll go on to higher levels of play, but also are they at injury risk. So when you throw, the angular velocity of internal rotation, so that's when you're bringing the ball forward, it actually – Peaks at about over 6,000 degrees per second. So you think about 360 degrees is a circle, so that's a lot of circles in one second. So that's a pretty fast acceleration that is undergoing inside the shoulder joint. So you can break down pitching into several phases. You have the windup, the early cocking, the late cocking, acceleration, deceleration, and follow-through. Most injuries happen between the late cocking and the acceleration. That's as a pitcher is starting to stride forward. They're already fully extranotated, so they're creating a lot of stress anteriorly, and now they're starting to come forward. So that is actually where a lot of injuries can happen. And I do want to give you a word about elbow injuries because you may be seeing a lot of patients, and this is a perfect time for counseling. So there have done several studies. What are risk factors for elbow injuries? And we have a lot of baseball players here, and because we have a lot of indoor facilities, they can play year-round. And Hopefully, you've all heard about the dangers of early sports specialization and how it increases injury risk and actually doesn't make you a better player. What makes someone a good professional player is that they're an athlete and they can play multiple sports. Uh, But when you sit down with these, the first thing you should look at is if they have an elbow injury or elbow pain, look upstream, look at the shoulder. Same thing with knees. You want to look at hips, right? Same thing in the upper extremity. If you have an elbow injury or elbow pain, look at the shoulder. And identify if they have decreased shoulder range of motion, So we'll talk about what that means. But basically, they may be throwing through their elbow. They're not getting that catapult energy by externally rotating the shoulders. so they're trying to generate all that force through their elbow. And that's how people get elbow injuries. Something that's been shown to increase elbow injury risk, playing on two or more teams at the same time. In Connecticut, that's actually against the rules for high school, uh, but it's not always enforced. But if they're playing on a high school team and a travel team or an AAU team, Ask them, how many teams are they playing on at the same time? Now, if they can play on them in different seasons, that's okay. But at the same time, they shouldn't be playing on two or more teams. And they need to take three consecutive months off of baseball. They should not be playing year-round. Now, two months here, one month there, six weeks here, six weeks there, that's not right. It's three consecutive months. Usually it's the summertime. can be the winter time. Now, they can play another sport. So you're not actually going to sit down and be a couch potato, but just cross-train. Play another sport. Play basketball. You know, play soccer, do something. Just don't play baseball for 12 months out of the year. And pitch counts are ultra important. Pitch counts help determine the number of pitches a pitcher has thrown, at least in a game. We're not counting, unfortunately, bullpen and warm-ups. But following pitch counts is important because based on your age, how many innings you've thrown, there's a certain amount of time of rest and maximum number of pitches. And you can find that at usabaseball.org, so you can always refer your patient to that, or something called pitchsmart.org has a great website, professional managers and players talking about the importance of pitch counts and injury uh, prevention. So pitchsmart.org is something I would encourage anybody to send their patients to if they're a baseball player. This is a discussion you should have, especially if they're a pitcher. So now we're going to go back to the shoulder. So that late cocking phase I was talking about where we start to see a lot of injuries, this is a 90 90 position, actually more than 90, as as you saw. Uh, But basically what happens is as they're rotating the shoulder back, the humeral head is going to start pinching up and back, and you're pinching the superior posterior labrum and the superior posterior rotator cuff. So that's something called internal impingement. Now, this is different than what we talk about in adults with external impingement, where when they bring their arm up, the acromion is pinching down. And that's something they that can also get better physical therapy by strengthening the scapular muscles and pulling the acromion back to give you more room for the rotator cuff, that's external impingement. This is internal impingement because internal, it's the ball pushing up against things. And so when you have that, you pinch the labrum, you pinch the rotator cuff, you can also pinch the biceps anchor. So part of the biceps attaches to the top of the labrum. So you get something called a peel back lesion where basically that tendon of the biceps is peeling back over the humeral head and that can cause some injury or some changes of the superior labrum. So once you generate all that force, You release the ball, you have to throw it, you have to stop now. That's a lot of momentum to stop in a short period of time. And it's interesting, if you look at professional pitchers, you know, we talk about rotator cuff and shoulders and things like that. They did a lot of studies in the early 80s with EKGs and professional pitchers, and they actually use their rotator cuffs very little when they are throwing the ball, at least in the acceleration phase. They're generating all this force with their big muscle groups. So their pectoralis, their latissimus, their trapezius, their deltoids. They're also using their whole body to throw, too. And we have actually a motion analysis lab over at Leech Sports Medicine where we look at pitchers. And we look at their whole body, something called the kinetic chain, because you start with the ground, you start with your feet, your legs, your torso, your hips, you're generating all this momentum. Out here is the end of the chain. This is not where you should be generating power. This is where the power is being released. So good pitchers are not even using their rotator cuff, they're using the strong, big, strong muscle groups. Now, when they're decelerating, that's when you do start to, to rely more on the rotator cuff, because... What's happening is as you're letting go, the ball is starting to kind of come out of the socket a little bit, and so that's where the rotator cuff is important to try and pull it. And so sometimes you can get some partial injury to the rotator cuff as the ball is stretching or shearing the rotator cuff. Now, follow-through is also where not only the rotator cuff can see some stress, but also the posterior capsule. So we talked about earlier tightening the posterior capsule where someone has instability. Well, in this case, a pitcher who's repetitively throwing is actually causing microtrauma or stress to the back of their capsule, so they'll actually get a thickened capsule in the back there. And you can get fibroblastic healing, you know, loss of tissue compliance, and this can cause something called GERD, which is sports GERD, not, you know, primary care medicine GERD, glenohumeral internal rotation deficit, uh, which, you know, there's a different term now, total arc of motion deficit, which I'll, I'll talk about in a minute. But these are actually normal findings. So you're going to see this in pictures. So this is, you know, a pitcher's shoulder is not a normal shoulder. They've done MRIs on professional pitchers. They all have cuff, pat, you know, cuff pathology, labral pathology, Follow them out for years, no pain. So a pitcher's shoulder is not a normal shoulder. These are biological adaptations that have changed over time. One of the things that you can actually measure is the humeral head and how that changes with time. So when we're born, when we're in utero, the humerus head is retroverted or pointed back about 78 degrees. Over time, it starts to rotate forward. And so it goes from 78 to 65 and then up to 38. And then the most rapid changes happen around 8 years old, but actually continues to change until about age 16. So you start with the humeral head point back. Over time, it starts to rotate forward. So a normal adult shoulder, you can measure the retroversion. You do this with ultrasound or x-rays. Um, you know, they're pretty close, maybe 4 degrees more on the dominant side, but you know, more or less within a few degrees of each other. So they should be relatively close to each other if they haven't had any biological adaptation. Now, we'll talk about how pitchers get this increased retroversion, but it is something that can actually help because it prepositions the arm in extra rotation. So therefore, you're already bringing the arm farther back. You're already getting that torque generated early. And so this actually has been shown to decrease injury and enhance performance. We talk about you know, being able to bring the arm back and part of that soft tissue, but a lot of this may be biological adaptation of that humeral head change over time. So the Columbia group, uh, a couple of years ago now, they looked at youth baseball players and divided them into three groups, 8 to 12, 13 to 14, and 15 to tw- 28. And they just simply measured, at a local little league, bilateral, external, and internal rotation at 090 degrees. And so they found that first thing they saw was they had less internal rotation. So on their pitching side, they, they brought the arm in less. So there is a change on internal rotation, but they saw that, that actually matched a, a uh, comparison with an external rotation increase. So what they saw was, is a total arc of motion is the same. So if you look at a picture and you see, okay, well, this side can't go down as far, that's a problem. Well, no, it actually may not be a problem because if their total arc of motion is the same as the other side, so you have to add those degrees, they have the same total arc, they are shifted backwards. They shifted backwards because that's their throwing arm. So that's an adaptive change, and they actually showed that it changed over time based on those age groups. Another study looked at collegiate players, and they looked at the retroversion. They used x-rays. Now we can use ultrasound for this, but they used x-rays at the time to look at that humeral retroversion, and they found over 10 degrees difference between the throwing side and the non-throwing side. So we know that there's an arc of motion shift. We now know that the retroversion is increased, so there's a relation between the retroversion and that total arc of motion. And so the Japanese followed the study using Japanese little league players, and they found that there was a retroversion change in time, but the retroversion actually decreased change in time. So whenever we think about adaptations, we think about you're causing something to increase. So you say, okay, maybe we're just increasing the humor retroversion on on the other side. But If you remember earlier, you know, a few slides ago, we talked about it starts back and it comes forward. So really what's happening is you're slowing down, the anti-version of that throwing side. So the other side is doing its normal biological change, starting backwards and moving forward. But by repetitively pitching, you're actually slowing down how much that humeral head changes over time. And that again, that can help. So this is just a, a picture of what a rotated shoulder looks like. You can see how far back the patient can bring their arm, and yet they don't bring it that far forward. And, you know, there was a study with uh, one of my mentors, Mark Shickendans at Cleveland Clinic, where they looked at all the top-ranked professional pitchers from the Cleveland Indians organizations. They used CD, 3D CT reconstructions, and they followed players over the years. And those who had more of a difference between their two shoulders actually were at less injury risk. Those two shoulders were similar actually had a greater injury risk. So this is something you can actually identify, and you know, if you're a professional baseball organization, maybe it means how long this player is going to last. But at our, at our level, at the adolescence, you can sort of identify, does someone have the body type to even proceed to college or professional? And that's a hard conversation to have with somebody if they're having continued arm pain. Maybe pitching isn't for them. Now they can bat, they can play infield, they can play outfield, but pitching, it may not be the right body habitus for a pitcher. And that's something you really should have a conversation because it's hard to tell someone that you're never going to be a professional pitcher, almost likely not a professional pitcher. I mean, you can obviously phrase it in, in a, a less uh, you know, obstructive way. But you know, if body type is, is everything. And you get to higher levels, you get to college and beyond, and you look at the, the body types of professional athletes and they fit a certain body type more or less. And so you, know, you get some of these old guys who've been around a long time, especially Cleveland Clinic, and someone walks in they can tell you right away if that person has you know, the athletic potential to, to move on in the world. So that's certainly something I'd have a discussion because if you're just going to increase your injury risk and it's not really worth it in the long run, you know, we, we should definitely talk about that with the parents and the patient. So we talked about some of these adaptations, right? So these are adaptations, right? But adaptations can go bad. You can adapt too much. And so there are three groups we'll talk about briefly when it comes to the thrower shoulder. Uh, You know, we talked about internal impingement, and there's internal impingement with acquired secondary instability, so you're getting this impingement, and you actually can stretch out or loosen the anterior structures of the shoulder. So not only are you having the internal impingement, they're getting subluxation or instability of the shoulder, and then group three is that anterior we talked about or the MDI, so they sort of fall in that same category. So again, internal impingement is when we have that pinching, and that pinching is not always pathologic. As I mentioned, you can see that on MRI. It doesn't mean it's a problem. It's often an adaptation, but it can lead to a problem. And again, it's when you have that, that late cocking, uh, early acceleration phase. So this patient, because the pinching is superior posterior, that pitcher will complain about posterior shoulder pain. And it's when they move into the slots. So if you say they move to a pitcher, like, you know, show me your slot. Usually you know what you're talking about. They're gonna go right into this position right here. And so as they're doing that, that head is pinching, the cuff and the labrum, posterior superiorly, so they'll complain of posterior pain. So that should clue you in. I'm bringing my arm back here, it's hurting back there, and you can actually recreate it. Some mistakes a lot of people make, though, is they just bring the arm here. Nobody pitches from here. They pitch like this. So a lot of these athletes, you have to sort of bring them into the extreme range of motion to recreate some of their pain, because that's how they're playing. They're playing at the extreme ends of range of motion. So in this case, for a pitcher, just bringing them here is probably not going to recreate their pain. You're going to say it's a negative test, but you might be wrong. Bring the arm further back into an actual throwing position, and then you might recreate their pain. And then you'll get a clue that this is an internal impingement problem. If you look at MRI, you can see that they'll have changes. This is a thickened capsule here. Normally the capsule is probably just as thick as this black line right here. So you can see how thick this capsule is. So that this is, you know, pathologic at this point. It might have some cysts in the back of the head because that's where it's bunching up against the glenoid and the labrum. And they might have some rotator cuff injury as well. Not necessarily a rotator cuff injury that you're gonna fix, but this is where the injury happens. It's all this posterior superior stuff. So if that, you know, ligament is tight, as I mentioned, you can get GERD. The newer term is loss of total arc of motion. The reason we've changed that is because They do have an internal rotation deficit, but as I mentioned, they have a compensatory external rotation. So if you're saying they have loss of internal rotation only, you're kind of missing the overall picture. So a newer term now is a loss of total arc of motion. And so traditionally, the definition is greater than 25 degrees difference. Fortunately, that's very rare. Um, But you can see 5 to 10 degrees difference very easily. And that has been shown as little as 5 to 10 degrees difference to increase your injury risk. So if you have a patient who has 5 to 10 degrees of total arc of motion loss, that's going to change the way they pitch. So they're going to bring their arm farther back. They're going to drop their elbow. They might even start turning their trunk early because they're trying to generate all this extra momentum. They're trying to find it somewhere else. And so that can lead to you know, breakdowns in their pitching style. So this is when you can you can identify these players. So they're coming to you for preseason physical. It's a perfect time to check their rotational deficit on one side versus the other. And again, check it bilaterally, total arc of motion bilaterally. And then test your internal versus external strength. A lot of times they're going to be a little weak in external rotation. There are some studies that show you only have to have about 65% external versus internal strength to reduce your injury risk, but usually they usually are a little weak in external rotation. And because this is all about that posterior capsule being tight, there's something called a sleeper stretch, which 90 percent, which it's a pretty high number, 90 percent of throwers are going to respond to the sleeper stretch, and the sleeper stretch is basically lie down. They're going to rest their elbow on the table, like, you know, you're lying on your side, and then you're just going to simply push down like this, and that's going to help stretch. The P-I-G-H-L, and that 90% of the time is going to help increase that rotational deficit and therefore you know, further down the kinetic chain. So the second group is they have this problem, but they also get anterior pain. So the first patient was talking about posterior pain, so that's that posterior in, superior impingement. Next one, they're going to complain about deep anterior pain during that same phase, when they're bringing the arm back here. And so that's actually because they're starting to stretch out or what feels like stretching out the anterior structures here. And so they're actually going to have some evidence of some instability. So you can have both restriction and instability. So restriction in the back, instability in the front. And the way some of this happens is it's, you know, a bit of a, a geometry problem. But The humeral head is not a sphere in the center. It actually moves forward, so it's called a cam. And so basically, because the humeral head faces forward, it takes up space in the front. And so when you have a tight PIJHL, it pulls that head back and up. And so you have all this space in the front that used to be occupied by the head. That space is now gone. So that ligament is now loose. And so that's where they get this instability anteriorly, even though it's a tightness problem in the back. And then the third group is that primary instability group that we talked about. In this case, it's often multidirectional. It's very rare for a pitcher to dislocate, but they may have MDI. Um, this is a, what I call a rotator cuff dependent shoulder because what the cuff is doing this is doing the job of the ligaments. They have loose ligaments, so as I mentioned many times already, the cuff helps to stabilize the shoulder. So what happens is they start the game slow. They actually improve during the middle of the innings, and this is because the rotator cuff actually warms up. They start to actually feel better, and then as the game goes on, they start to hurt again. And that's because that rotator cuff is now fatigued. It's been doing the job that it's supposed to do. But it's also doing the job of the ligaments, and that's why the cuff starts to fatigue, and that's why they get worse again as the game goes on. And you're not going to see much on MRI because it's a ligamentous problem. Right? You, you know, so as I mentioned, sometimes you can see some evidence of MDI, but really this is a, a physical exam finding you're going to diagnose them as MDI. And just to review, these are the things you can see, a sulcus sign, an apprehension test, a relocation test, and the baton scale. So those are really the things that you need to be looking for if you think this person has ligamentous laxity or instability of the shoulder. So this is a challenging problem, you have to keep the rotator cuff strong, you have to do the scapular program, you want to monitor their throwing volume, because again, these pitch counts are, are very important, especially in the use level. And you, we used to do an open shift, some people still do that, but we can also do an arthroscopic shift. And basically, you start at the bottom, these two arrows here, and you're tightening up again that posterior, that anterior, that hammock, you're going to bring the hammock up, and then if you're thinking you want to do something for that inferior instability, You're going to do what's called a 270 degree repair, so you're going to do the 180 here at the hammock, and then you might do something up here in the rotator. So, some take-home points. If you have a traumatic shoulder dislocation, the treatment really, whether it's PT versus surgery, depends on their age. Are they less than, most of the time it's less than 20 when we see them, but technically it's less than 23. What sport do they play, is it a contact sport, and how many dislocations they've had. So if it's a first-time traumatic dislocator and an 18-year-old who's a football player, That's someone you can make an argument for doing surgery for the first time. If it's, you know, a 25-year-old or even a 16-year-old who's a female and plays, you know, field hockey, uh, and this is her first time, well, that's somebody you probably want to start with physical therapy for. So really that decision-making tree depends on the age, the sport, and the number of dislocations. Now, if you're thinking about multidirectional, that's something you're not going to see a lot of on MRI. There are some clues, but really, your exam is key. And you have to start with six weeks of PT, have them come back to you after six weeks and check on their progress and their compliance, whether they're actually doing those therapy exercises. And if you're dealing with an overhead athlete, they're a very specific category. So if you're seeing a baseball player, please educate them on their risk factors because it is an epidemic of elbow surgery right now, and a lot of it is preventable. Make sure you measure the total arc of motion bilaterally, and start on PT and, and teach them that sleeper stretch, because it's a very easy thing to teach, and 90% of the patients will respond to that. It takes two minutes to show them that in the exam room. And, of course, the most important thing you've learned today is mammoths may be cloned in the future. So These are just some pictures of us. Uh, this is us being walked out by a Yakutian, Siberian, in traditional dress, because the U.S. actually won the bronze medal. They lost to Russia and Iran, but they beat Georgia, the country, Mongolia, Turkey, Cuba, and Cuba uh, to, re- to reach the bronze medal. And this is us leaving Yakutsk shortly uh, before we were presented with a fish for our victory. Uh, everyone was presented with various things. Uh, the guys got necklaces, I got a mammoth tooth, and the coach was presented a fish. So a very traditional Siberian thank you. Any questions?